0: What's up, my friends? Jason Jimenez here. So glad to be with you guys here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Today is podcast 104, and we are now entering uh, into Friday of the Passion Week. So if you have missed out, you can always go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast. The study notes are there available for you. But if you have been following along, you know that up to this point, we spent eight different episodes looking at Thursday of Passion Week. And obviously the reason we spent so much time looking at Thursday is because you had the preparation of the Passover meal in the upper room that led to the Lord's Supper. Prior to that, when they were about to have uh, the meal, uh, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And he obviously rebuked them because of their arguing of who was going to be the greatest. Then, of course, you have the tension there about who is going to be betraying Jesus. And then Judas Iscariot leaves as, as Satan enters him. And Jesus partakes of the Lord's Supper with his followers, with his disciples. And there he starts teaching them in John 14, 15, and 16 about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then as they closed in some, some of the Psalms, Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane To pray and we see a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus in John 17 known as the priestly prayer and of course the inner circle Peter James and John they're very tired and their flesh was weak their spirit Jesus says was willing but their flesh is weak and they would not uh, stand and watch with Jesus as he was about to be betrayed and so now we enter into early Friday morning where the first event that we're gonna be talking about on today's podcast is the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. Now, when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record this particular incident in Matthew 26, 47 through 56, Mark chapter 14, 43 through 52, Luke 22, 47 through 53, and John 18, verses two through 12. Now. Because there's so much content to this, what I've done is I've taken the four different accounts from the gospels and I've meshed them into one narrative. So let's jump right in and we'll begin in John chapter 18 verse two, where it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now this is important geographically to understand the location if you had a map in front of you. Uh, and there's some study Bibles that have kind of the, 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 the travel points where Jesus was during the Passion Week. And so you, if you have something like that, you can access it and kind of see the locations of where Jesus has been and where he currently is as we're now entering late Thursday into early Friday morning. And here we're told that Judas, he knew where Jesus often would go with his disciples. So that already gives us insight how Judas, when he left, how he knew that Jesus would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the temple is directly across from Gethsemane near the Kidron Valley. So everything's within proximity of one another. And then we're told in Mark 14, verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, if you jump back to John chapter 18, verse 3, it says, So Judas having procured a band of soldiers. Now, this estimations here could be anywhere from 300 to 600. Now, I believe that obviously up to that point is is overkill. But it gives you some insight that we're not just talking about a few. Sometimes when you see like the Jesus film or you know, anything that's reporting on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, you tended to see kind of a mob of people. They probably no more than 20. Well, when you look at what's taking place with these band of soldiers, there probably was several hundred. So we're talking beyond just a mob of some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So the other thing we have to understand, according to John's account, is that you have some of the main reps, these chief priests and Pharisees that were there with these band of soldiers. And this is important because this is finally the point where they were able to get a hold of Jesus. This was their opportunity. Remember, if you've been following along, they have always looked from the very beginning, really, of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee, to arrest him or to try to kill him. And so now this was their opportunity because finally one of the guys you know, within his 12, in this case, Judas Iscariot, was, was paid off. And he was giving them insight into the whereabouts of Jesus and how to access him. And so they wanted to indict him for insurrection. Now I wanna go a little further into who these band of soldiers were because not only were they, uh, temple soldiers not only were the chief priests and some pharisees there but also these were some roman soldiers and there were some mercenaries that were mixed with it so made up of these several hundred of people um, and these people came from caesarea and they were probably brought there why you had such a massive amount of soldiers to come arrest jesus because they were brought there during the feast and these soldiers they resided at antonia fortress which was northwest of the perimeter of the temple complex. So a lot of these mercenaries and Roman soldiers, they had no clue what uh, Jesus looked like and really a lot of what, you know, things he was doing. So they're probably confused. So that's why they needed someone like Judas Iscariot and also some of the chief priests and people and Pharisees who have been tracking Jesus for quite some time in order to identify who Jesus actually was. And now these officers... These were, again, the temple police who were under the strict orders of the Jewish council. So here you already see from the beginning this alliance that the Romans and the Jews had in order to arrest Jesus. Now, when we look at John 18, verses four through nine, it says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So here Jesus fully knew what was about to take place. And so what he does here is he approaches the mob of these people. Remember, mixed with all these different people, chief priests, Pharisees, mercenaries, Roman soldiers, uh, temple officers, like the temple police. And he freely submits himself to this intrusion. Remember, he was just praying. His disciples were asleep. They were tired. And so here he is really alone standing in front of this mob of people. Now we're told here in verse six that when Jesus said this, that I am he, it says they they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, when you go back to the statements that Jesus made throughout his ministry, when he spoke the word as the great I am, it startled a lot of people. And I believe at this point in time, as man was assembling uh, their armies together to indict Jesus for insurrection, to go against him, him speaking to them by saying, I am he is realizing again what they're about to do, that they're about to arrest the Messiah, God in the flesh. Now, remember, there were many occurrences where people were amazed by Jesus's teaching. They were startled and they fell back, if you will, when they heard by which authority he spoke. You see this in John 7, verses 45 through 46. And then we're told that Jesus responds to them again in verse seven by asking them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. In verse eight, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Verse nine, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost no one. Now, what I believe is going on here is that Jesus is repeating himself because there's a lot of people And he wants to make sure that he's very clear that he is the one that they came to arrest. And it was a way of him protecting his disciples. You see that throughout the Gospel of John, where Jesus takes a focus on him to protect his disciples. Now, when you jump now to Matthew 26, 49, and a portion of verse 50, notice it says here that Judas then comes to Jesus at once and he said, greetings, rabbi, meaning my teacher, and he kissed him. In verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend or comrade, do what you came to do, meaning you came for me, so then now you can take me. Now, I believe that Judas, who was this pupil, he approaches Jesus, his rabbi, with an unusual greeting. Remember, pupils didn't kiss their rabbis. So I believe this carries actually two meanings about what Judas was doing here. Now, by the way, because we reported on John 18 first, oftentimes we get this picture that When Jesus is in the garden and his mob with torches come, remember there's just like a few of them when in fact we're looking at several hundred of a mixed bag of Jews and Romans, right? And mercenaries. But then we kind of picture because of some of the movies that Judas immediately walks up to Jesus and kisses him on the cheek. When in fact, remember Jesus is one that confronts them as they enter the garden. So that's important. But here now, when Judas does approach Jesus in response and kisses him, number one, I believe that Judas did this as a way to show Jesus that he was no longer his pupil. And two, to identify Jesus, of course, right, for the soldiers in order for him to be arrested because most of them in this mob didn't even know what Jesus looked like. And they were told in Luke 22, verse 48, Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So Judas's greed was evident and it was one reason why he gave up Jesus to the chief priests. You see this in John 12 verses 4 through 6, Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Now I want to add though that there are a lot of scholars out there that believe that the main reason why Judas did this, why he betrayed his rabbi, Jesus Christ, was because he felt that Jesus was um, bringing harm to the Jewish people that people are getting a bad rep because of it. I don't believe that was solely the case. Again, if you go back to John 12 and Matthew 26:14 through 16, I truly believe that greed was at the heart of Judas, that he only cared about himself and his interests. He didn't care ultimately for the Jewish customs. He cared about advancing himself. And that's ultimately what led to his downfall. And then we're told here in Luke 22, verse 49, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? So now all of a sudden, the disciples are wide awake, obviously, and they're ready to fight with a sword. I mean, when was the last time that we see the disciples doing this on behalf of Jesus? Never. So the disciples, of course, they wanted to do that. They're trying to protect. And you think, oh, that's so sweet of them to protect Jesus. You know, they couldn't pray with him, but they're willing to kill for him, right? But but the, the the irony of all this is that the disciples again just a few of them they're no match to hundreds of soldiers that were there to take away their teacher and again that's overkill if, if you think about it I mean maybe just a few Roman soldiers would have been enough and even to have Roman soldiers be bothered by this quote unquote you know Rabbi who was claiming you know prophetic nonsense but here you have it you have this massive amount of people. But hey, the disciples, they're willing to defend and protect Jesus, just like Jesus was there to protect them. So there again, there's there's some love and respect. Then we're told in John 18, verse 10, then Simon Peter having a sword drew it. So here in one sense, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And immediately, which is very customary of Simon Peter, right? He has a sword, he draws it out, and he strikes the high priest's servant. And he cut off his right ear. Now the servant's name was Malchus. So Peter takes matters into his own hands. And what does he resort to? Not prayer, not a a, uh, oratical defense of Jesus, but rather he resorts to violence. Not a directive notice given by Jesus, but he takes matters into his own hands. Again, something that Peter oftentimes did. But this was an act of demonstrating his courage and his loyalty to Jesus Because if you remember, Peter said that he would even die for Jesus. And so this is Peter's way of standing for Jesus. Remember, if you look at the contrast of it, Judas is the one that's kissing him, betraying him, saying, I'm done with you. Now, in verse 51 of Luke 22, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear of Malchus's and he heals him. Now, can you imagine this? That you're there to arrest Jesus and yet one of his own disciples attacks a servant of the high priest and there's blood everywhere and it doesn't go in great detail, but you could imagine Jesus picking up his ear that was cut off by Peter's sword and he places it back on his head and he's instantly healed. I mean, what would you do? How would you feel at that moment? And again, it wasn't that Jesus's disciples, in this case, Peter was attacked and he heals him in front of his enemies. no, one of his own disciples attacked an enemy and yet Jesus in love still reaches out and he heals Malchus's ear. And then he turns to Peter in John 18 verse 11. He says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? In Matthew 26 verse 52, uh, the, the second part of that verse, it says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now again, Peter had great zeal. But the thing that we see even at this moment, his flesh was weak. Okay. He was not willing to pray, but he was willing to act in violence. He lacked the obedience and the knowledge to truly grasp the situation at hand. Perhaps he had, if he had stayed praying and asking God the Father for guidance, maybe he would have had more spiritual insight, but he didn't at this point. And now when this phrase that Jesus says, drink the cup, what he's referring to is saying, the suffering and the death that I will experience and taking on the wrath of the father against sin must happen. You see this in Psalm 75 verse eight, Ezekiel 23 verses 31 through 33. So Jesus is here to fulfill prophecy. And in the disciples' minds, they were immediately trying to protect Jesus. They thought what they were doing was the right thing to do. That was the right course of action. And of course it wasn't. Because big picture, Jesus had to be betrayed. Now, Matthew 26, 53 through 56 says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, Jesus says, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? So you think that it's pretty impressive that the Sanhedrin was able to get mercenaries and some Roman soldiers, and there's several hundred of them to come arrest one man who never uh, committed an act of violence. But yet Jesus says, hey, if I wanted to take care of this, I can send thousands of mighty angels to take care of this in a heartbeat. In verse 54, though, he says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So not only does Jesus extend great love through his healing power to heal Malchus's ear, but notice the restraint, because ultimately Jesus knew what was set before him. And he knew in that great love and that mercy that he needed to do what he was going to do to take on the sins of mankind, to offer eternal life, to be that second Adam, to redeem us, that the imputation of Christ's righteousness will be placed on us. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, the new church, the church age would start. So here Jesus is reminding his disciples that he doesn't need their protection. He could call down a legion of angels for each disciple and for himself. Now, remember, a legion in Roman military composed of 6,000 soldiers. Now, to put this in perspective, think about it. Because Jesus is saying, if I, I, I can send 72,000 angels, you guys, in a heartbeat to come to my aid. Now, let's put this in perspective. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, if you go to that passage, we see there that, in, that one angel killed how many Assyrians? Do you remember? In one night? A hundred and eighty-five thousand. So do the math. If Jesus sent 72,000 angels, he could wipe out the world. Any empire would just be destroyed in a heartbeat. Now, if you jump back to Matthew uh, chapter 26, verse 55, it says, At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. And you do not seize me, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then Luke twenty-two verse fifty-three. But this is your hour, and the power of darkness. So yes, there was a great mob there, and yes, that Jesus can send seventy-two thousand angels to wipe them out in a heartbeat, no problem. But notice that Jesus also refers to the power of darkness. You see, we can't underestimate that. Be- that behind the scenes, we know that Satan entered Judas Iscariot. So it wasn't just the greed and the pride and the selfishness of Judas Iscariot to betray God in the flesh, but Satan was moving behind the scenes and he was orchestrating this chaos. And yet Jesus remained obedient to the the scriptures to fulfill the scriptures and not allow the the dominion of darkness to disrupt the plan of salvation. So even though Satan was moving and this is the best he can do, he cannot thwart against God's will. That Jesus Christ who came into the world, that he would die on the cross, but on the third day he would rise from the dead. So we're told here in Matthew 26 verse 55, then all the disciples left him and they fled. So they were so afraid of this period of time. Remember, Peter responds with a sword. He's rebuked by Jesus. Jesus heals Malchus's ear. And before you know it, they've abandoned Jesus. So in the end, they're really not on the side of Jesus Now, the band of soldiers were told here in John 18, verse 12, and the captain and the officers of the Jews, they arrested Jesus and they bound him. So here in the middle of the night, the soldiers tied Jesus up and they take him to Annas. Now, Mark 14, verses 51 through 52 says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. Now, this obviously is a very unusual uh, incident that's placed here in the Gospel of Mark, and I believe it's placed here because the person who put it there was probably the author himself. In this case, this would be John Mark, who got his account from Peter. And this is also interesting. One is because he puts a a piece of embarrassment that leads to I think some authenticity of these accounts. Otherwise, why would you put something like that in there that's going to embarrass you? But again, it's real because it happened. And John Mark puts it here because he's placing himself right after Jesus is betrayed and arrested and taken to the temple where he's going to be tried. And so that's intriguing. Again, this is speculative. We don't know, but it's just kind of interesting sometimes when you have some of these kind of remarks that are put there to kind of try to reason them either one away or try to make sense as to why they're placed there in the first place. So there you have it, my friends. That is the first part of Friday of Passion Week where Jesus is in the garden. Judas Iscariot comes to him and in front of his former colleagues, he basically rejects Jesus, not just as his rabbi, not just his former friends and colleagues, but rejecting the Messiah and the flesh in front of the Romans and the religious leaders who paid him to do that to hand over Jesus to them so that they can try him and have him crucified. That's what they wanted to do. And so next time we're going to be diving into the Jewish trials before Annas and Caiaphas. And then, of course, Jesus is going to go to Pontius Pilate and then Herod and back to Pontius Pilate where ultimately he will be scourged and he will be publicly humiliated, stripped naked and crucified on the cross. And he did all of this for your sins and for my sins so that you and I can have everlasting life. So thank you so much, my friends, for paying attention today, for tuning in, for supporting this ministry. I love you guys. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at StandStrongMinistries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.